Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sally Gentry. And we are celebrating. Yes, we are. Woohoo! The Donate Life Louisiana Registry is, guess how old? How old is it? Oh, that's very good. 20 years old. And we are celebrating with you listening right there, right, Joe? Yes, we are. Today, we're going to have two long-term, I mean long-term recipients What here sharing their story with you. Over 20 years, even longer than the registry, even though it's the registry's 20th birthday. Amazing. Blows my mind, guys. So as you can imagine, quite a celebration here on The Gifted Life. And you, you right there, can help us keep this party going by sharing the podcast. Share. Rate, subscribe if you want to subscribe to one of the Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any of your favorite podcast apps. Yeah, on Facebook, guys, where Donate Life Louisiana, a lot of what we talk about here on The Gifted Life, you can find there in pictures and more description. Twitter and Instagram, at Donate Life LA. Or if Joey and Lori were not clear in these avenues to find us, yes, you can there always give us a call, 504-648-3477. That's the hotline. Leave us a message there. Works like a voicemail. And we may use your audio right here on The Gifted Life because we want to spur those healthy conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. And you can help us do that. As we told you, lots to get to here on the podcast. Let's get going. Here on The Gifted Life, we are all smiles. We are celebrating the Donate Life Louisiana Registry is 20 years old, guys. It's 2.5 million strong. We think that's in part to the education. We partner with our volunteers. We head out into the community and we share our stories. We do that here on The Gifted Life as well. So if you're listening, you're part of the solution, which is amazing, right? So we're celebrating. And the way that we're doing that today is that we're going to inspire you to do even more, right? Some incredible stories coming your way. To celebrate the 20 years, we decided to take two people who are the longest running recipients that we even know of. I don't, I don't know of a whole lot of longer lung recipients in the nation and share those stories with you. And so I'd like to introduce Jane Long. Jane is a 23-year post double lung recipient. Wow. So welcome, Jane. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about why you needed a transplant to begin with, and then kind of a little bit about your story. Unfortunately, I was born with cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic disorder that affects mostly the lungs, but it also affects the pancreas, liver, kidneys, and intestines. Long-term issues include difficulty breathing and coughing up mucus as a result of frequent lung infections. So I didn't get sick until my teenage years. When I turned 15, hormones kicked in and everything went downhill from there. Mm. So I was immediately referred to doctors in St. Louis. I started my journey with three evaluations and got on the list around my junior year of high school. In high school, high school student at that time, and I had no idea about 
anything about transplant except what I'd seen on TV, on ABC, and the networks about the xenotransplants with animals and things like that. So what was your first thought when the doctors introduced the idea of you having a transplant? Pretty much it came down to I, I got to meet a girl that had a transplant a year prior. And my doctor was very informative. I, I was raised by my grandparents. And we knew eventually we would have a talk. But finally we sat down and uh, my doctor put me in a private room and said, we need to talk. And my experience when someone says we need to talk, yeah, wasn't very yeah. wasn't very good. So I sat down with him, and he's like, "I want you to meet someone. I have to be honest with you. We're giving you a few more years to live." And at the time, I was sixteen. You know, the only thing I had a boyfriend, and I grew up a very simple life in Virginia. And the last thing I wanted to hear was that. I had to make two choices, to live or die at that age. Mm. And having this thrown into my life, I, I really had to sit down, grow up, <laughs> um, adapt to what I was used to, and make this decision based off this girl I met. I met her, and she had her transplant um, a year prior. And... You know, the first question, and I actually get this question to this day with many teenagers, is where's the scar? You know, being a teenage female, um, that was an important question for some reason. And I, and she's like, let me show you. So she lifted her shirt and showed me where her scar was. And I'm like, oh, I can handle that. <laughs> you know, being nonchalant about it. Mm. She's like, well, it's not easy. She's like, this is the start of your journey. And... Um, like you don't have to learn to adapt. You don't have to be ready for it. And um, it changed her life, actually. For the good, she was in college at University of Virginia, and she ended up finishing because of the transplant. Now, unfortunately, a year later, she passed away, right before my transplant. Mm. But I had to do it. I had to continue my life. That's all I knew about transplant. You know, I grew up, the less I knew, the better, I think. And that's how I feel now. So. <laughs> but you got to see that she was able to live some time with her transplant and coming into contact with someone, and, and obviously she was someone who inspired you, had to at least ease some of the fears that were there. Absolutely. And, you know, I wrote down a few notes the other day. At the time, in 94, you know, the doctors gave me survival rate of 78%. They only lived for about a year. 62 lived for about three years. 50% lived about five years, and only 26 lived for 10 years. So I was running wow. into this operation knowing this. And she was the only one I knew. And believe it or not, insurance didn't even cover it because it was so new. It was so, it mm. was so experimental at the time. I didn't think about that. I'm just sitting here thinking at 16, that's a lot for you to take in. It was a lot. And I, I became ill quick. I mean, it, it happened overnight. I was a cheerleader. Within months, I was on oxygen. That's how fast it happened for me. So I think a lot of my success in life is I had to make it my new normal to survive and having a 
healthy mental state has always gotten me through this journey. Within almost to the day after I graduated with my grandmother, unfortunately, my grandfather passed away that year. And I'm like, I'm here. We're ready. I'm ready to go. Within months, I got my transplant. Wow. That's great. Kind of fast forward, if you will. You know, okay. it, 20 years later, you reach out to your donor's family. And I'm wondering, what made you decide at that point in time to, to write to Sandra? A few things. One of the biggest problems with transplant recipients of my age, when I say age, survival, is your body shuts down. Uh-huh. And my choice is not being on a lot of medications. I got to prolong my life. I mean, not prolong it, but live it. Well, you traveled a lot, too, didn't you? I traveled a lot. I went to college. I experienced life. My first 18 years of my life, pretty, you know, self-life, I called it. You know, it, it was never, I never had um, the pleasure of saying I'm going to have a future. Uh-huh. I have an older brother, you know, and I grew up with him. He was my sidekick. He always had future plans. He knew he was going to get married. He knew he would go to college. That was vocabulary that was never introduced to me. Wow. So, gosh, one of one of the thing, one of my big goals in life was if I make it through this transplant, I wanted to make each year the most I could. So. You know, some of it was unorthodox. <laughs> I completely partied in college. Um, you know, I started traveling. I started doing things I wanted to do. Yeah. And and as the years went on, you know, I started thinking to myself, all right, I'm outliving my family. Um, it's time to get a little bit more serious. In 2010, I ended up getting cancer. Oh. And from one of the drugs I was on, believe it or not. And I, I thought to myself, all right, I need to reach out to this family. Um, mm-hmm. That's the least I can, can do. Because the following year, unfortunately, I finally lost my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So that took the court. Mm-hmm. I wanted to reach out and maybe gain another mother in my life. Uh-huh. And this is opportunity to do it. Oh, wow. Well, we had the opportunity to talk to Sandra here. If you want to hear the other side of this story, it's the Gifted Life episode 56. And I just remember talking to Sandra and the look on her face when she said, I heard from this recipient, right, Sal? She was just so, so taken back that all these years she never thought she would hear from any of Katrina's recipients. and. I can tell you, she was just thrilled, Jane, when when we got the letter, and I, I had the good luck or good fortune, if you will, to call her to let her know that we'd received a letter. You, you probably saved one another. You know, it was always in the back of my mind. You know, I, I, I knew little. I mean, she knew probably more than I knew about her, actually. I have talked to a lot of other transplant recipients and you know it's some of them are very they have strong opinions of not contacting right their donor families and i'm like why not yeah. but I, you know i see the reasons why 
I never, I was never raised to be negative, a negative person. Mm -hmm. And Uh anybody that comes into my life, you know, I instantly give them a chance. I instantly love them. And, you know, that's something I wanted to do. I always thought, you know, that's the least I could do for maybe someone really wanted to know, you know, receive their loved one's orient. So that's what kind of started the process. A good friend of mine said, you just need to go do it. I've been talking about it for five years. (laughs) And she's like, I think this is the time for you to do it. So, Jane, here we are, you know, 23 years later. What does your medicine regimen look like these days? I'm on one drug, and I'm I'm still on an enzyme for cystic fibrosis, oh, which helps digest yeah. the food I have to intake. So that's amazing. For the most part, you know, I I try to eat healthy. I'm on one drug, Prograf, which is pretty standard. Yeah. Um, in the pill set, I call it of twenty six drugs that most of the transplant patients yeah. that I meet today take, and the enzyme in a multivitamin. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. much it. That's wow. the last thing I take every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, awesome. I, I'll get a cold maybe, you know, mm. if that, and or a sinus infection or whatever, and I'm on a dose of antibiotics for a couple weeks, but that's it, you mm. know. And, you know, in I didn't want to feel like a zombie. I didn't want to feel comatose. People, I think, are so heavily drugged in this world, um, and I never wanted to feel like that. I had more reason to be alive than being drugged up. So, yeah. Well, Jane, we have heard about your life. We have heard about your travels from Miss Sandra, who, who just loves you, and, and we have kind of adopted you and following your story as well. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us here on The Gifted Life, and we know that there's more to your story, 23 years plus. It's pretty incredible. Thank you, Miss Jane. You're welcome. Wow, incredible stories today, guys. And here's another. Hal Graham joins us now. Hey, Mr. Hal. Hey, guys. We certainly appreciate you joining us. We are sitting here in awe because a double lung transplant for you when? October 8, 1990. 1990. So do some quick math here. How long ago, Sally? I was a a senior in high school. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) 27. Yes. 27 years ago. 27 years ago. How Like you were blowing our minds here. This is amazing. So how are you doing today? Doing really well. Doing really well. Very thankful every day. Oh, my goodness. So let's go back to the beginning. Was it cystic fibrosis that you were diagnosed with that? Okay. So tell us about life back then. Well, I mean, I was diagnosed at age two. Growing up with cystic fibrosis, you just kind of don't know any different. You just know that you take a lot of pills and have to have people beat on your chest yeah. and and stuff like that. My dad was a career Marine officer, and he basically just pushed me really hard. This quitting was not an option. Mm. I had a pretty normal life growing up. Um, I played Little League Baseball. I never let my friends. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, actually Mount Pleasant. I never let my friends know that I had CF because I never wanted them to exclude me from anything. And so I had a pretty normal growing up, if you will, and was able to keep up with my friends and all that other stuff. And then 
went off to college and graduated from UNC Wilmington and worked for a couple years after that. And that's when I started having more problems. Growing up with CF, it has to be such a challenge. This is 27 years ago. I'm trying to wrap yeah. my brain around that, so, right? And, and so did you even know that there was a cure, basically, that transplants were something that could happen to you at that time? It's interesting you say that, Joe, because I didn't. Yeah. And I remember being, uh, you know, CF, unfortunately, has your ups and downs. And I remember having a really down day, and my father would, he just never was, he was relentless. He's like, you're not going to quit. And I remember it was in the late 70s or something. And I think it was probably my junior year of high school. And I just had a terrible day. And you know, I was just kind of done. And he said, you, you have to hang on because one day they're going to transplant lungs. Wow. And that's, that's amazing. different <laughs> for me telling you guys that we're going to be living on bars in five years. Uh-huh. And permanently mm. and of course i was just like he's just delusional and um because I, the the thought of transplanting lungs back then i'd never heard of it i don't think they were doing it till then so i well after that and i just figured it was just a ploy for him to keep me going but sure enough damn if he wasn't right <laughs> yeah you know i can remember you know in the 80s uh seeing the the xenotransplants you know from animals and you know attempts right. with that right pigs and like exactly. That. Yeah, so, so we're going through that time frame, and then here you are, your dad saying, "Hey, this this transplant's going to happen to you. Just, you know, drive on." Absolutely, that's exactly what he did. So, in '90, you were how old? Twenty-eight. So you're 28. You'd finished college. You were working, uh, but you must have been pretty sick to get to that point. So, walk us up to that transplant. So, I had worked after college and kind of done had a fairly normal life. I still would be more tired than your average person. And with cystic fibrosis, you continue to get, <clears throat> excuse me, these respiratory infections from having bad lungs. And basically you go in the hospital and you'll get IVs for a couple of weeks just to clear out that infection. And it was probably on every year and the frequency would in- increase. And then it was every, you know, twice a year and then three times a year and then four times a year and then it got to be where it was literally every three weeks mm-hmm. and I would come home I was still trying to work and I literally would come home from work and just you know lay down on the floor and I just couldn't get up I was just exhausted mm-hmm. and I just decided that this just this is just no way to have this is no way to exist and so I happened to be up at Chapel Hill UNC and having, uh, I was getting IVs, and Dr. Egan, my surgeon, had come in the room, and he was just starting the transplant program up there at UNC, and of course, looking for patients. Mm-hmm. And when he first approached me, I was like, you're crazy. You know, mm-hmm. he said, there's a 50-50 chance of making it off the table. You know, he said, you might live a year, maybe five years if you're really lucky. Mm-hmm. And I basically threw him out of the room, mm-hmm. and I basically said, not me. Yeah. And about a couple months later, I was sick again, and just the frequency of these IV treatments, which just were just debilitating and would wear you out, was just that's all I was doing. And I just decided that that's it. And I decided that I had to give myself this option of a transplant and it'd do one of two things: it would work, or basically put me out of my misery. As cold as that sounds. 
down. So when you were making that decision, had you met any successful lung transplant recipients? No. So so no. you were just taking a complete leap of faith yes. with no. this physician saying you have a 50% chance of dying tomorrow if you do the surgery. Or you can continue making it off the table. Making it off the table and and you took yes. the leap of faith and here you are of course, but wow. wow. I just didn't really have a choice. I mean, you know, people sit there and say, "Wow, you're, you know, you've got all these guts and all that you know, you're a strong person, but when you're going to die and your back's up against the wall, you'd be surprised what you can do." And you say, "Okay, yes, doc, I'll go with it this time." So what happened, you know, then from that point on? Yeah, it's interesting, Joe, because I'd come back into the hospital for IVs again. And I remember being in the room and talking to my ex-crazy girlfriend. <laughs> we, we all have those. We, we, <laughs> in every yeah, story. We resurfaced back to my transplant. It was like the, I had the angel nurse and the nightmare girlfriend. <laughs> whole other story. Um, and um, so anyway... Um, I was back in the hospital on uh, getting IVs again, and Dr. Egan had come popping in the room. It was about 7.30, and he's not a very emotional guy. And he came in, he said, hey, I'm going to look at some lungs tonight. And he said, there's a chance that, um, you know, we may be on go. Uh, He said, don't get too excited because I have to go out and look. And, you know, they prep you for these dry runs. And the dry runs, they basically prep you for surgery and um, take you down, and you're pretty much prepared for surgery. And then he flies out and looks at these lungs, and he calls back to the hospital and says it's a go or it's a no-go. Obviously, this must have been a good match 27 good, years later. Think, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so what's, what's your first memory after that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when he, you know, he flew, he was very picky, and he would personally fly out and look at the lungs himself. But once he calls back to the hospital and says it's a go, they start kind of taking your old lungs out, if you will. Because apparently in cystic fibrosis, the lungs are so diseased that they kind of adhere to your chest wall. So it's not like taking a healthy person's lungs out. They, they pop out. They're exactly they chiseled out. I don't know if I'm... Uh, it just takes a little longer to. to uh, it takes a little longer, so because of the time uh, frame, they have to kind of go ahead and start that mm-hmm. as the lungs are being brought back to UNC. And of course, I had all these questions about, you know, what if the plane, what if his plane's delayed? You know, what if yeah. there's an accident? <laughs> you know, what if, what if all this other stuff is going on? You know, and and I just, I you know, had all this stuff in my head. All this could happen. You know, you know. Things happen every day. I try to get somewhere, and you know, there's a wreck. Yep. Blah blah blah. And he just looked at me. He said, "He said, stop worrying about this." He said, "It's like Greyhound leaves the drive into us." That's right. <laughs> and I think that was their motto back then. And I just, I said, "Gotcha." Got I it. I didn't ask him another word. I did not have one more question for him. You know, my fate was in his hands and God's hands. And I'm not a surgeon. You know, I barely got through college with any science. <laughs> uh, what do I know? I'm just going for it. So do you know anything about your donor? I've ascertained some stuff over the years. Um, he Apparently, the guy was killed in a motorcycle wreck. Um, he was a couple years older than I am, and he was killed in Pensacola, Florida, which is 
pretty ironic because I was born in Tallahassee, which is huh. probably an hour or so away. So, and that's kind of all I really know. Uh-huh. I think I maybe heard at some point his family was a doc. His, his dad was a doctor. Hmm. That's that's all I know. They must have known yeah. about yeah. donation in some way. Yes, yeah. they, they totally know about donation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, just from being on this podcast. I learned from, from my mates here and then from those who, who call in. But so I'm thinking 27 years and the changes in medication and things. So what has that been like for, for you or did it kind oh, of stay the status quo? It's incredible. I'm um, one of my friends in, in Charleston is connecting me with a 15-year-old uh, uh, boy who just had his surgery at UNC. Matter of fact, I called and spoke with he and his mom this morning, just kind of a little pep talk. and um, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, what they did to me was right after my surgery, um, you know, I'm cut. They cut me from armpit to armpit, you know. They just sliced me open like a big grape or something. And the surgery now, I believe they make like a U under yeah. each armpit. They kind of stick the lungs in that way. It's less invasive. The healing time is better and all this other stuff. And so I asked this, this boy, I said, hey, did they... um." do chest PT on you, and that's what they do to cystic fibrosis patients is they kind of bang on your back to loosen up this mucus that cystic fibrosis produces. Mm-hmm. And he kind of was like, what are you talking about? And um, I said, well, man, they got me up, and of course I was split open like a, a filleted flounder, and then somebody's banging on your back. It mm-hmm. hurt like hell. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, nah, they, did, they didn't do that. So I'm thinking maybe they've learned that Maybe that doesn't do what they thought it used to do, and we can do without that. <laughs> yeah. All well, the strides, yeah, over 27 is, years. Yeah. So yeah, how, which is pretty cool. I know. So what have you been able to do with this second chance, with this great gift? Well, I've, I've been able to lead a totally normal life. Dr. Egan said before I was discharged, you can never skydive or scuba dive, which I could care less about either one of those. <laughs> Um, I mean, who jumps out of a perfectly good plane anyway? I agree. <laughs> and um, I had changed. I changed careers. Um, I learned the appraisal business. I made partner in my real estate appraisal firm. Um, I met this wonderful woman. I got married. Um, I have been blessed all around. I've invested in real estate. I've, I've just done anything I wanted to do. Um, there's yeah. nothing I haven't done, nothing, I've, nothing that I wanted to do. I, I, I've, I've done everything I've wanted to do. Yeah, that's great. And it's just been such a gift because, you know, before, I mean, I just was so sick. I mean, it just, it was just, I get short of breath brushing my teeth mm-hmm. uh, towards the end. So it's just been such a gift. I'm so grateful for my donor family and just a big advocate of, you know, being an organ donor and just like this, this boy I reached out to, um, I was like, wow, if I was a week out of my surgery and I could talk to some idiot that was 27 years out, that would give me so much hope. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Completely, I love that you're a mentor. Yeah. And I love that you continue to help us promote organ tissue and eye donation to help save more lives. We're going to continue to follow your story. Great things to come. Yes. And like I said, without organ donation, I would not be here speaking with you guys. All right. Thank you, Hal. Here on The Gifted Life, we are going to honor a hero. That hero's name, Elliot Hardy. Yes, this is from his family. 
Elliot was a wonderful person with terrific sense of humor and a large heart. Everyone who knew him liked him, and all of his family and friends loved him immensely. Elliot enjoyed his computer, video games, watching funny movies, and most of all, riding his motorcycle. Elliot completely refinished his motorcycle and was very proud of it. Sadly, he lost his life riding his motorcycle. Though our family has lost someone precious, we have some comfort knowing that our loss has given someone a better life. We love you, Elliot. And now we pause to say thank you to Elliot for the gift of life. In our question and answer segment today, how long can someone live with a transplanted organ? That's the question. Joe, you have an answer? I do, actually, since we just heard a <laughs> yeah. 20 plus year lung transplant. Incredible. Transplant recipient. It generally varies with each organ, the life expectancy of the organ, and, you know, lungs are usually a little shorter. You've got basically an opening for, uh, for infection, you know, or bugs to come, you know, every time you take a breath. So you've got that organ there that's, you know, that's, that's prone to more uh, problems. Where vice versa, you've got kidneys, you know, and, and livers that obviously don't have that outside contact with the world that, that don't get infected so often. Uh, so you'll see oftentimes with kidneys 20 to 30 years even. But who knows, Laurie? To be honest, I mean, the ones when we're talking 20 to 30 years back, you know, that was the beginning of, of transplant. Right. Really, when it, when it became more mainstream was 20 to 30 years ago. So, uh, you know, as we just heard, you never know. I mean, it's, it's, it could be, we, we know certainly it's greater than th uh, 30 years at this point and, and it's a, a significant length of time. And, uh, and as we progress with medicine, it's getting longer and longer and longer. So you yeah. never know. And every day we learn something new. Yep. All right. You have a question, info at lopa.org, or you can give us a call. Oh, you sure can. Yep. That's 504-648-3477. The Gifted Life, guys. Another episode in the books. I know that's your one. favorite saying right there, Joe. But our Donate Life Louisiana Registry, 20 years strong. And that's for you guys who listen, all those volunteers who help us, and more to come. Let's continue to grow that, that registry, which is 2.5 million strong in Louisiana. Um, that's yep. great. Yeah. yeah. Special thanks to Jane Long and Hal Graham. Amazing greater than 20 years out. Right. Who would have thunk it <laughs> almost 30 years ago, you know, when they're in, in the situations and, and struggling yeah. with the disease That's processes right. and they're given basically three to five years. You don't talk year. about donation back then no, like you do today. That's, right. That's exactly. something. And here we are That's almost right. 30 years later. And Jane being able to speak with, well, actually reached out to Sandra 20 years, and Sandra hadn't heard from any of her daughter's recipients. And now yeah. they're in contact. They got to meet. She's very successful in real estate. And then Hal is a real estate appraiser, very involved with life. I mean, what inspirational stories do they have, huh? I love those stories. Gives me my get up and go, right? And we yeah, hope that it does that right. for you, too. And we want you to go out today and do something that you don't normally do to help us make life happen. Thank you.
This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sally Gentry. Our producers are Kirsten Hines and Shalon Carraway. We are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Metairie, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 